the night we went to this beautiful concert and to a banquet after that. And then I went back to my hotel. And in the morning, this gentleman called me and said, come to my house at, for noon, for lunch, you know, at noon. Okay, we'll see you there. So I went there and he said to me, well, Paolo, I decided to give you a thread. What, what, I said, what do you mean? I'm going to give it to you for the town. It's a gift. I said, come on. <laughs> and yes, here, this is the paper. It's already written by my lawyer. You just signed. And so I said, but what, what, what do I do with the, with the violin? Take it home. <laughs> so it was already the case there. And so I signed the agreement. I put the violin into the case and uh, I, I walked. I said, what, what, what am I going to do with the, uh, the custom? I said, just walk through. I mean, this, is, this, is, this violin is mine as, uh, until you go to Cremona and you register the, the violin there, you know. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and in 2015, my wife Paul and I traveled to northern Italy to learn as much as we could about the history and art of violin making. The first city we visited was Cremona, which is located on the banks of the Po River, 50 miles southwest of Milan. Cremona is considered by many to be the birthplace of the modern violin for it was in Cremona that the legendary violin makers Antonio Stradivari and Giuseppe Guarneri del Gesù once lived and worked, as did several members of the Amati family of violin makers. Today, there is a thriving violin making school in Cremona, as well as 150 independent violin makers. Nearly every street you turn down, you'll find a violin shop or two. Upon arriving in Cremona, Paul and I visited the Museo del Violino, the Museum of the Violin, which is housed in a spacious and beautiful building designed to tell the story of the violin from the mid-16th century until the present. The president of the museum is Paolo Bodini, a physician and former mayor of Cremona. After visiting the museum and enjoying a concert by three gifted American violinists, Sean, David, and Lauren Carpenter, each performing on an early instrument from the museum's collection, we visited Dr. Bodini at his home, and I asked him to talk about the creation of the museum and his own passion for violins and the people who make them. Okay, my name is uh, Paolo Bodini. Uh, well, I'm a medical doctor in my real life, but uh, uh, since many years I spend my spare time uh, working for, for the foundation, the Stradivari Foundation, and now for, for the Museo del Violino, where I'm a chief executive officer and the president of the Francis Stradivari Network. As far as music is concerned, um, yes, I've been educated to listen to classical music from my parents that uh, enjoy this type of music. So since I was a, a kid and then a teenager, I used to go to concerts in, in town and in, in other venues. And so I, I've never been uh, really a, a professional <laughs> um, musician or, or player of any instruments, but you know I always enjoy to to, to listen to music. And uh, then, well, what happened in my life actually that I became the mayor of Cremona in 1995, you know, and I was the mayor of this town for for ten years, for two terms. And uh, during that time, of course, I uh, started to. Um, uh, to to know and 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 uh, to do everything concerning the town and of course uh, violin making is always has always been very important. The tradition of violin making in Cremona dates back five centuries, so it uh, is a very very important uh, things in 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 Cremona's life. And especially in my in my second term, where I was more well, let's say more relaxed or more uh, had a little more time to uh, to look at what I I. I, I like more, you know, I realized that how important this uh, subject was for, for the town. And uh, I realized that it has never been really uh, developed to its, uh, uh, never developed all its possibilities, all its uh, chances. So uh, I start to think that we should, we should have made, should have uh, do more, you know, to, uh, to promote the knowledge of, uh, of violin making, the tradition. And, uh, so I started to dream about uh, uh, putting together 
all the pieces that were already in town in terms of collections, in terms of uh, artifacts of Stradivari, because they were in different places in town. And I thought that, I uh, started to think that uh, to put in this in, in one single place and so to create a, a museum for the violin would be a very good uh, um, sort of business card, you know, or, uh, for, for, for the town. So when I, when I finished my, my work as the mayor, I became the president of uh, Stradivari Foundation. At the time, actually, it was, was a board, was called a Triennale Board, because uh, since uh, 1976, uh, the, this board was organizing the, making, the international violin-making competition, but was not really well organized. I mean, it was working every three years, but then it didn't have many other activities. So I started to, you know, to plan activity for this board uh, all over the year, you know, in terms of meeting, in terms of uh, um, exhibits, historical instruments exhibit, and so on. And then over in, uh, three to four years, I changed this board to a real foundation in order to uh, get more people involved, institutions, you know, private people that could uh, give some money in order to implement the activity. Uh, certainly this is the place where Stradivari and Guarneri lived and made their, their instruments, Amati, uh, famous names. Then um, I guess the tradition of violin making sort of died out in the town. And uh, from what I understand, uh, Mussolini at a, a certain point in his career looked at Cremona and thought that um, that this should be brought back. Yeah. Well, yeah, the story is about that uh, in, in the second part of the 19th century, there was a you know, basically an economic depression, and there were a few makers left in town, a couple of families, and they decided to move to Milano because it was a more rich, richer town and was more more active. So, uh, and they started a, a school in Milano, which became the, the school, Milanese school was the most important in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, so no, no, uh, no maker was, um, was left in Cremona. So, uh, and during the fascists, there was a very powerful man in town, his name was Farinacci. He was, he ranked like number three in the fascist uh, uh, nomenclatura, so to say. And uh, so he had power and he was able to, to bring money to Cremona. So in uh, 1937, uh, he decided, you know, of course, uh, with the agreement of Mussolini, to make a big celebration of uh, Stradivari's 200th anniversary from his death. And um, he was able to make a very important uh, exhibit of instruments of, uh, of Stradivari, but also other Cremonese masters, with many instruments coming from the United States and other parts of the world. Uh, so it was a really big uh, celebration. And at the same time, he opened uh, the uh, school for violin making. Of course, this went on for a few years because it was in 1937, then the World War II came around, so everything stopped. But uh, soon after the war, the school reopened, and at that time the town was really able to bring some of the best uh, makers uh, in, uh, from, from Milano, but also from other countries, you know, to restart this tradition. And in a few years, really the school sort of boomed, you know. Uh, if, you, if you look at the numbers of uh, people working you know, from the 50s to the 60s, you know, it was really a huge increase. And um, many of these uh, people, you know, that, that graduated from the school decided to open their business in town. And, uh, and, and the city, the municipality was helping these people to find a place, you know, a workshop, and the Chamber of Commerce also gave some help. So in, in, in a few dec decades, uh, the number of uh, makers uh, that were living in town increased, and now we have about 150 uh, violin-making uh, shops, which is a huge concentration of people. And it's rather international community, actually, because many come from different countries, uh, in, from Europe or also the United States, and now the East countries like Korea or Japan or China. And, but they come to Cremona, they stay for the five years of the school, and then they go into some, uh, some of the workshop to get, be trained, you know, and then mo many of them uh, decide to, to, to stay here and to make their living here. So when you walk around the streets of Cremona, it's easy to, to see this beautiful uh, shop window where uh, you can see, and you can see, actually, you can walk inside and see these people working. And uh, the characteristic that everybody uses, the, me the method of construction of the violin, which was invented by Andrea Matti in the first place, and that was brought to 
let's say, to perfection to, to, uh, by Antonio Stradivari. So this very traditional method where everything is done by hand, uh, each of the maker make his own uh, glue, you know, starting from bones or from uh, uh, grease, or uh, they make their own varnish. Uh, so they really try to personalize as much as they can their instrument. So there had been this uh, competition then was held here, you, you were saying, every three years yes. where people from all over the world would come to bring makers. Makers, yeah. Bring their instruments and, uh, and bows also? Uh, no, no. We, just we specialize on uh, string instruments. So violin, viola, cello, and double bass. And so that was the, uh, the group that you worked with that eventually became a foundation. Right, exactly. Yeah. With this much larger mission. Mission, in fact. Yeah. I really, I mean, my, my mission has been this year to make it more international and to make it more known and to have more people coming to Cremona uh, to participate in this life. So the competition, of course, was very important. In the last edition, we have more than 300, around 300, 350 makers enrolled into the competition with more than 400 instruments coming to Cremona. And we have an international jury made by five international known makers and five musicians for the different instruments. And they work together and they give scores for different aspects of the instruments. And um, we, uh, if an instrument in one of the four categories win the, the gold medal, which is not uh, compulsory, I mean, the, the jury is asked to select really very, very good, or I would say exceptional instruments. Otherwise, we don't give the first, the gold, gold medal. We just give the, the silver. But the gold medals are uh, bought by the foundation. So we give, you know, we, we decide how much money we will give before the, the competition. So if one of the instruments reaches really a very, very high standard, it becomes part of the contemporary collection, which is a permanent collection on exhibit in the Museo del Violino. So, that means that, you know, if a good maker from any part of the world makes a really beautiful instrument, he can have his instruments next to the Stradivari or the Guarneri in this, under the same roof. And I think this is very rewarding and really makes a difference in the career of a, of a maker. We've been traveling through Italy, and you cannot help but notice these marvelous basilicas and churches and cathedrals. And many of them were built because they came into possession of some relic, some sacred relic, whether it was the chains that mm -hmm. held St. Yeah. Peter in Venice, St. Mark's. And I think in, in the secular world that we live in now, that these uh, instruments have acquired the same potency of being oh, really? really relics. And therefore, you come to the town, almost a pilgrimage, mm -hmm. to the town where these relics exist. And to, and to build a building to house them is what I understand happening here. Like, like, yeah, like building a cathedral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good comparison that you made between a relic and, uh, and, and violin. With the difference, these are still alive. Uh, the violin, even violins which are almost 500 years old, can still be, be kept in condition to be played, maybe with some delicacy or some attention, but we have some Andrea Matti that we can still play sometime for concert. So uh, the first purpose, of course, is uh, to, uh, to preserve the instrument for future generation. Uh, but, you know, uh, we think that, and what, what we do with our policies is to, to use these instruments in a very delicate way, but to make people listen to, to the special sound that comes from, from the past. Uh, and in fact, I mean, building this museum, which actually has been a renovation of a building already existing in town, which was not used for, for, for a few decades, uh, was indeed a really, um, how to say, a, a very good choice for the town. We have seen a tourist increase over this couple of years because we opened the museum in September 2013, so we're not even two years old. Uh, and of course, I mean, even before there were tourists that were coming for this reason for violin, but was more uh, specific type of, of tourism. So say some more specialists, more people that knew that there were, and they were looking around the different part of town to see one place that were the, the ancient violins, in another were a contemporary collection, in another were the uh, Stradivari artifacts and so on, you know. Um, but the general public was, wasn't really involved in this, uh, in this tour. So the, the idea, the philosophy behind the museum was to say, we have to build something where anybody you know, can 
you know, some, some a person that knows nothing about uh, violin you know, can walk in and understand what is behind a musical instrument, what is behind the violin. So the idea was, okay, we have these beautiful masterpieces to show, but we also want to tell a story. Uh, you know, what was before the violin, how the violin came to life, and how it developed over the centuries, and what, what it has inside, uh, what is the really deep so uh, soul you know, of the violin. Not only the, the sound post, but really the soul that a maker can uh, put into the uh, musical instrument. And uh, I think that we succeeded. I mean, the people like the, the, you know, the trail through the museum. Uh, we also have uh, positions for, for, I mean, we have, yes, position for, 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 for kids, for children, where they can learn, you know, with a simple language and have some interactive uh, uh, way of, of learning, you know, the type of instruments, uh, uh, the woods, uh, some of the characteristics of the instrument themselves. Um, and so we, we, we see many families coming and uh, enjoying the, the tour around the museum. Uh, so we're very, very, very happy with what happened in these couple of years. Well, I'm sitting here smiling because you're talking about understanding the internal workings of the violin <laughs> and yeah. what you have done for many years as, as a physician, internal medicine. <laughs> how, how has that work informed, has it informed how you do this work with these instruments? <laughs> Well, I, I'm, I don't know, you know, it was a, a passion that's been uh, growing over, over the years. You know, the, the more I, you know, the more I, I, I work into this field, the more I was interested in understanding, you know, what was behind and knowing, you know, the people that were there, you know, the spirit of the makers and so on. But I also participated to some of the, um, let's say, some of the investigation, scientific investigation we do on the, on the violin. And uh, not only looking with some microscopic, you know, uh, uh, some mi microscopic mm, inspections, you know, to for the to understand what how they I mean, what the state of uh, of health, so to say. But we also took the instruments to, to the hospital for having a CT scan in order to see, you know, uh, and to check if there were any defects on some cracks, you know, this is something that can. Uh, that uh, the, the, the eye can miss, you know. Uh, we also did some endoscopy, actually, uh, through the air holes of, uh, of the instruments. Uh, we insert, you know, small scopes, you know, in order to inspect the inside and, and check what, uh, what was there. So, you know, I tried to combine a little bit of my profession as a gastroenterology uh, with uh, <laughs> this activity uh, as, you know, present of the violin making foundation. <laughs> I think as a physician, one of the things you learn over many years, or some physicians that I know have learned, is that you become extremely knowledgeable about the mechanics mm -hmm. of the body and, and the function of illness and how it works. And yet, often this thing called healing occurs in ways that are still very hard to define. Mm -hmm. And you sort of rely on this other quality that you're not really sure you're almost trying to conjure this force of healing as you do all the right things with the body. And I would see that also similar with a violin because people have really studied the Stradivari and Guarneri violins, to, I mean, just to such microscopic detail and reproduce them. And they are not Stradivari violins. Yeah. And they're not... Yes. Well, there, you know, there is something, uh, or something, let's say, mysterious, you know, in this... Uh, story of the violin, uh, and uh, probably there are some characteristics that cannot be reproduced because uh, uh, there were some elements that can change over, over two or three centuries. Maybe the quality of air, I don't know how the, the, you know, the varnish dries out or the type of wood that you can find. You know? uh, and also the other thing that uh, modern makers, we, we have to give modern makers the chance to have their violins getting old enough to be appreciated. Maybe, you know, in, in, a, in another century or so, we'll find out that we're instruments that are, are uh, as good as Stradivari. We, we, we hope to, that this will, ha will, will happen. Um, and I don't know, uh, there is also some very in, involvement, you know, spiritual involvement when you listen to these uh, ancient instruments. There is, they, they have some personality that tells you something more. And we, we, every, each of us like to think, you know, that uh, 
just for the fact that they survive 300 or 400 years, there is something special in them. There is a sort of natural selection over the centuries. What would be your insights into what's going on in Italy today? How economies are changing? How industry used to function? How the crafts, the way we made things, you know, the tradition of craftsmanship. Mm -hmm, yeah. And in some ways, this is not a holdback to another age, but certainly it's, it's showing great regard for a kind of human dimension to the things that are in our lives, rather than things that are made in large factories or large buildings or outsourced to other countries. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if you could speak to that, it would be great. Uh, just you, what do you think is happening to Italy today? I know also if, from several of my conversations that tourism uh, is a very specific thing that people are promoting now as a way, especially for the smaller towns, to stay relevant, stay, stay mm -hmm. financially healthy. Well, uh, let's start from this ten point of, of tourism. You know what what happened still happens that most of the tourism in Italy follow certain tracks which are very uh, attractive. Like, well, let's say the first time anybody comes to Italy, we go to Rome, Florence, Venice. You know, these three typical towns. And uh, of course, it's more difficult to uh, for for gen normal tourists, you know, to know how many beautiful towns and how many characteristics exist in it in a country like Italy, which is a small country, but very, very differentiated. I mean, Italy has been fragmented for, for many centuries, for all its life, after the, uh, the Roman Empire and until 160 years ago. Uh, so the tradition and, and uh, were very different, you know, the, the, the way people live from north and south, but even from across the river in one place and the other. You know, the cuisine changed, the, the accent changed, the di dialect changed and so on. Um, so there are many, many uh, different Italy to be discovered. And so we, we, what, what we try to do from this point is to say, okay, uh, if, you, if you leave, you know, the big uh, touristic track and you go into the province, you will find more real life, more real uh, uh, Italian style. Uh, because it's not so... Sometimes the cities, the big cities are, I say, they adapt to, to mass tourism, you know, and this sort of, uh, they lose their, uh, or try, tend to lose their characteristic, their, their, their soul, you know, and this certainly doesn't happen in Cremona or in many other small cities around, uh, around town. The second, second thing that you mentioned is about the importance of artisans, of, of, of making craftsmanship. Um, there is something, there is a sort of a, a desire and, and uh, tensions to go back, you know, to, to the ancient and traditional work. It's more difficult nowadays because uh, everybody wants to make, you know, maybe better living, make more money. But if, if you are a good craftsman, I mean, if you really um, can, uh, can put into in what you do with your hands, you know, to put your soul, you, what, what you really, uh, and, and all this tradition that is behind, uh, then you really realize something that can be worthwhile for you, for yourself to, to do in, in life, and also a very specific pro, um, product for, you know, for the buyer. Um, of course, you can buy violin made in, uh, you know, in series in large factories like they do in China, but, you know, it's something that does not satisfy the, uh, especially the, the player. They want to find their, their own specific sound. Um, and each violin has its own characteristic from this standpoint. Also, the way that you assemble the violin, not only the, 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 the wood and the shape, but also the type of strings you want to put on, the bridge and the pins, everything can be very personalized in a, uh, in a, in a violin-making shops. And uh, many times the, uh, the, the, the musician, you know, he buys an instrument and goes back to his, to his makers to have some little change until the instruments reach the perfect uh, tuning and the perfect uh, um, assembly, uh, you know, <laughs> how do you say, um, the, 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 the final uh, um, set, you know, to be played at its best. There's a very important relation between the buyer and the maker. So the museum's remarkable in terms of the physical building itself, the design, mm -hmm. uh, the way... Uh, the spaces work, the acoustic spaces, the auditorium is, is yeah. a remarkable space. And so tell me a little bit about the, the real nuts and bolts of how that happened. 
I guess you had a very large benefactor, and then how the design elements came about, who was picked to design these things. So if you're telling the story of the, of the building itself as if it were its own instrument. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, as, as I, t- I was t- telling before, I mean, the Eastern was already in place since about a century. And again, it was, was a building made during the fascist time to, uh, to celebrate the fine arts of, of the time, you know, of, of the regiment. Um, uh, there was a, a Cremona Prize for fine arts during, uh, in the 30s, basically. And uh, so the, the spaces inside the building were already uh, fit for, for, for exhibiting artifacts. And uh, what we did, we've been very lucky, as you mentioned, to find a local benefactor, Mr. Giovanni Arvedi, who was very generous, and he decided to renovate the building, and then he fell in love with the project, and he also bought you know, the, um, all the showcases and uh, all the equipment for the interactive area of the museum. So he basically paid everything. And, uh, and where did he make his uh, his wealth came from? What source? Uh, he is a uh, steel factory. He has a big, big, large steel factory in, around town, just outside town. And um, then he um, he chose the architect, which is a local architect, uh, it's a local architect studio Bianchi and Palou, and they really did an outstanding job. Uh, and what we did, we put a rather large team together with experts in. Uh, in, in violin making history, of course, uh, more generally in instruments, uh, uh, musical instruments, uh, in architecture, and so on. So we have a team of about 12, 12 people, you know, working together to decide the layout of the of, uh, of the museum and uh, how the museum would would uh, um, develop. You know, uh, how would you know? Well, the, the conceptual conceptual layout in order to, as I was telling before telling a story, you know, saying a history. So it was a, a job, a two years, basically, job of this committee that work about the... the and then, of course, many other things came uh, along the way. Uh, when, um, by the time the, 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 the work started, you know, uh, they were already meeting all the time and always making better and better, so, to the, to the final product. But was it a, really a teamwork? Yeah, so the process itself brought this community together with a new awareness of the importance yeah, of the violin. Yeah, absolutely. It was a very, um, a very, con, I would say, uh, in Italian, <laughs> condiviso. Condiviso, very, uh, uh, well, I, I mean, let's say everybody in the community agreed with the project. There were no opposition. Yeah, okay. So I would say in, in my uh, Political experience or <laughs> my administrative experience probably was the only project that uh, had no opposition in town. Everybody was, you know, okay, we have to do it. So well, that's lovely that, because this is the age in which we live of, uh, in in America, particularly, and I'm sure here in Italy, reading some of your political, you know, yeah, lot, lot of controversy, <laughs> lot of controversy. It's a it's a tribalized age in a lot of ways, and I think media yeah. plays a role in that, and I, I really do. I think it uh, makes us begin to fight. And yeah, I agree. <laughs> even the nation state, I think, is, is in serious jeopardy uh, mm-hmm. because of this kind of tribalization. And in some ways, it's even enhanced with all these devices that everyone carries around because you're always just interacting with your close tribal group. Yeah. Uh, even when you're in a public space, you're not talking to the people across the way you might have never met. So you have a museum where at least it's a physical space where people can come and share a common tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important. And if I, if I may, I may ask, I add you know, one thing, you were mentioning this, all these uh, social media, you know, that have some, sometimes they, are, uh, they work on the bad side, but in our case they also work on the good side because we have been able to really expand the community of the followers of our museum. And this mainly through what we call the Friends of Stradivari Network. You know, this is really, we've been really working hard on this, trying to, uh, you know, connect people around the idea of, okay, being a friend of, what means being a friend of Stradivari? Just simply being interested and love, you know, the tradition of violin making in, in Cremona, which, by the way, has been recognized by UNESCO as a, uh, as a world heritage, you know, an intangible world heritage just a year and a half ago. This was part of the activity that we made with the project that we, uh, we brought around about. 
And um, so I think that this community, which is enlarging, is very important. You know, you can be you can be an owner of a, of a violin, or you can be a player of the violin, or uh, or a person who study or publish something, or simply that love, you know, to uh, the, the the story and, and everything which. Uh, which live around Stradivari, and you can become a friend. In becoming a friend, you can donate a little money to, and, and help the foundation to grow and be getting more and more international. Um, and, and in this way, I mean, in this respect, social media has uh, helped us very much. And I, I see social media having this great potential if it is serving a larger goal. Yeah. And if that goal is then, again, creating physical community or places to come where you, you engage with the world rather than something that becomes its own world unto itself. Yes, Where you want to <laughs> escape true. the world and just be in this virtual world. Yeah. I guess I, I fight against that somewhat. And I think that's why I'm so drawn to the fiddle. I, I play fiddle, not violin, as you know. <laughs> and um, there's such a social community uh, around fiddle music, yeah. uh, you know, the weekend get-togethers and so forth. So... That's been a good part of it. Yeah, that's been important. And, and also it's true that uh, music is a very international language. I mean, that really it's perhaps, well, also some figurative art can do this, but can overcome the, the language barrier. I mean, when, when you listen to music, everybody can you know, understand, listen, enjoy whatever language they speak. And this is sort of a miracle, I think, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and the violin is sort of, how uh, to uh, say, Perhaps it's instrument number one, you know. Uh, it can be maybe because it's so small, you can you can powerful, uh, very flexible, can make a wonderful uh, spectrum of sound. Can be taken around, uh, you know. And we, we know there are, you know there's so many stories about uh, the the these instruments traveling around the world. So I think it's really symbolic of something. Uh, about the, the friendship they can create among people and uh, among nations. I'd heard a story from someone who had, uh, a violin makers who would make his violins and before he put the finish on, the varnish, he would take them up into the bell tower <laughs> and hang them up there for some time, months and months, believing that the vibrations of the bells were, was transmitting itself <laughs> into the wood. Yeah, speaking there. about uh, yeah, bass yeah, singing. Exactly, that's what I thought I'd, I'd <laughs> ringing bring, now, yes, ring yes, that yes. story up. So, um, yeah, we like to think that there is something magic in Cremona anyway, you know, that, okay, people come here, they learn how to make their violin, but when a violin is made in Cremona, we, we, we like to believe that, something, that this fact adds something to the violin itself. Ah, yeah. Right. So, yeah, you know, marketing, you know, of course, and I mean, made in Cremona, you know, something that makes it special somehow. <laughs> I once served as the director of a museum and have first-hand experience in the many ways that historic artifacts and works of art find their way into a museum's collection. Here Apollo tells the story of how one particular violin was able to return to the home of its birth. So what happened was, I think was, we were in 2006 or 2007, and uh, this gentleman was a collector from, from America, came to Cremona to visit the museum, and he was very enthusiastic about this. And he was organizing a, a concert with some of these uh, Cremonese instruments uh, in New Jersey. And he, he invited me, this was about two months after his visit in, in Cremona. It was very, very kind, he hosted us there, and uh, then in the morning before the concert, we're just walking around his house, which was on the ocean, a beautiful, beautiful house. And um, he told me, well, what would you like? He said, he said well, you know, I think you, you have many violins and you could do something important for Cremona. Maybe lend some of your violin to the, to the museum. But the museum wasn't open yet, but to the town, you know. So I, just this idea of the Friends of Stradivari collection in the back of my mind. And... Uh, he said, okay, I will, I will, I will think about it, I'll let, let you know something tomorrow. So the night we went to this beautiful concert and to a banquet after that, and then I went back to my hotel. And in the morning, this gentleman called me and said, come to my house at, for noon, for lunch, you know, at noon. Okay, we'll see you there. So I went there, and he said to me, well, Paolo, I decided to give you a thread. What, what, I said, what do you mean? I'm going to give it to you for the town. It's a gift. Oh, I said, come on. 
<laughs> and yes, yes, this is the paper. It's already written by my lawyer. You just sign. And so I said, but what, what do I do with the, with the violin? Take it home. <laughs> so it was already the case there. And so I signed the agreement. I put the violin into the case and uh, I, I walk. I said, what, what, what am I going to do with the, uh, the custom? I said, just walk through. I mean, this, is, this, is, this violin is mine as, uh, until you go to Cremona and you register the, the violin there, you know. So I was so astonished and I didn't know what to do. I said, well, well thank you very much, you know. <laughs> and then I, I took this violin and I had to go around and to visit some other friends before taking my plane home. So I was really worried, you know, with this violin, which was, was worth about uh, more than two million um, euros at the time, dollars at the time. So, you know, all scattered with myself, you know. <laughs> and then finally I, I came back to Cremona and I called my, my press agent and I said, well, call up for a, for a press conference because as soon as I... I, I come to Cremona, I want to make this announcement to the, to the city. I was the mayor of the town at the time. So this was what, what happened. So I had all these uh, uh, journalists coming to the city hall, and I walked in with this case, and I said, well, ladies and gentlemen, I have to make an announcement. Now Cremona has a new, a new violin in its uh, collection, and it's a beautiful thread, and here it is, you know. And <laughs> so this was really, uh, well, probably the most, happy day in my life and uh, as, as mayor life of course you know um, and it was a big big success and, uh, and this guy has been very very generous with it. and now it's part of the of our collection very good very does, good does it have a name uh, uh, the name of the of, of the of the violin that was given to me uh, is Clisby Clisby Stradivari by 1669 do you know the origin of that name? the name was from a former prop uh, owner was a former owner. Many, many times the instruments bring the name of their previous owner. Sometimes they're given a nickname, like the Vesuvius, for example, uh, that, you have, that you have listened this morning, or the Canon. Yeah? And the Vesuvius and the Canon basically had the same idea behind. Also, the Vesuvius means power, means the volcano behind you. So something that really can explode as far as power of, uh, 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 of sound. So like, like the Canone Paganini, which, as you know, was made by Guarneri del Gesù. That's a wonderful story. And uh, yeah, I think it's very important because many, well, I would say many of the collection of art collection around the world, you know, are made by good donation of a private person. Sometimes a very large donation of rich people, but sometimes are, you know, donation from, let's say, normal people that want to contribute to the wealth and to well-being of, uh, of, this, of a community. So I think it's very important. And so this violin that was given to the uh, to the town and now is part of the museum. Now it's part of the museum. Is played there occasionally for the public. It to is. Enjoy. It is. It is played. Yes, it's one of the beautiful. It's a 1669 uh, thread violin, so it's uh, early. It was uh, one of the violin made in uh, early years, but uh, very good. Talk about uh, the Carpenter uh, concert. I met the Carpenters a few years ago. I think in New York through Mrs. Uh, Eva Lerner Lamb, who is another collector of uh, instruments in, in New York, uh, with which we are good friends. And, um, and, and, and some of these in instruments of the family, of the Lamb family, has been to Cremona, and, and a couple are still, still here. So I met these three uh, young uh, musicians and also dealers because they have a fine uh, violin uh, dealing uh, society in, in New York. You know? And uh, they're very talented. So we've been in touch. Uh, they also came to Cremona once quickly, and so we they 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 are now making a tournée in in Europe. So they wanted to come back to, to visit Cremona. So we're very happy. So we set up the concert this this morning concert, and we're very happy to have them here. Um, so in 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 exchange of the, so to say of the of the um, of the concert, they. Um, were allowed to pick up, you know, the instrument they like more in the, in the collection. So when they arrived yesterday afternoon, we went around the, uh, the museum and said, well, you can use this one and this one. So we pick up the three instruments they've been playing this morning. I thought it was a very beautiful concert, very lively, very intense, uh, very happy also. They choose very nice exciting music with a good rhythm and with the pieces that are not uh, often played in Cremona, at, at least in Cremona. 
So I've seen the audience very enthusiastic, very happy, uh, and, and the music was, was wonderful. I mean, the instruments were absolutely uh, you know, first class, but also the players were first class. So I think it was a very unforgettable uh, concert for, for Cremona. And many of the other instruments of, of the Friends of Stradivari, all the instruments of the Friends of Stradivari collection are on long-term loan, usually a year at least, you know, some of them more, because you know, it's, it's in any way an effort to bring an instrument here, pay for the insurance, you know, take care of it. And so it's, in, it's sort of an interchanging uh, section of the, of the, of, of the museum. Uh, we got in contact with um, the Glinka Museum in, Mo in Moscow, I think about two years and a half ago, Uh, I received a letter from the director that he knew that in Cremona uh, there was a new uh, museum and uh, they have a very large collection which is uh, not on display, which is kept in a uh, caveau, you know, in, 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 uh, in Russia. And uh, they sort of want some, some help, you know, to understand uh, and what to do, you know, with these instruments, maybe to make a new, uh, well, to... To, to look at them, first of all, to uh, maybe thinking of a display uh, to check if the attributions of the instrument are correct and so on, you know. So we started this work with them. We've been to Russia a couple of times. They've been here. Uh, we had already a concert with the Strad in, in, in Moscow and, and then St. Petersburg and so on. Some instrument will arrive in Cremona for restoration in, in, in the future months. So we, we made this agreement of bringing some of the instruments of the collection to Cremona for the next three years. So each year we'll have two or three instruments from the collection. So the first choice was uh, for this viola because, uh, also because, well, first of all, because the beautiful instruments and the Stradivari violas are so rare, you know, so uh, there are only 12 in the world, you know, so. And, um, but was built in uh, 1715. So this year was the 300 anniversary of, of, of its life. So we thought that was a good time to bring it to Cremona to celebrate. And in fact, we have some special concert for, for the 300 years old viola. We'll probably have a recording of a CD before uh, the viola will leave Cremona. And um, we also are celebrating the 300 anniversary of the, uh, the violin called Il Cremonese, 1715. So the brother the twin of the same year so we thought having a viola and the violin of the same year together uh, was uh, a good uh, um, addendum you know to the to our museum and in fact is, is is a big attraction nowadays here is a short segment of a piece of music performed by the carpenters in their concert at the museum in cremona i recorded it using a single microphone from my seat in the auditorium Your work now that the museum is here uh, and a place where these instruments can be displayed, can be honored, I would think is also bringing real work to some of the restorers 
very highly trained restorers who live in this town. This is a great resource for them now. Yeah, I think uh, this is a, a, a more than a possibility. It's already something which is actual. Uh, I think that w w one thing that we also try to uh, implement is that to say that in Cremor there is all the knowledge uh, you need, you know, in order to uh, know what kind of instruments you have and what to do with it. Uh, we have the violin making school that collaborate with the museum, but we have also two laboratories inside the museum from different universities. One f comes from the University of Pavia, and it's a, um, it's a laboratory that uh, studies the materials, so the wood, varnish, state of preservation, with a lot of sophisticated uh, equipment, non-invasive non equipment. And the other is a laboratory from uh, the University Politecnico di Milano, of Milano, uh, that is an acoustic research laboratory where the, the violins or the instruments can be tested. So I think these two uh, new uh, assets that are in town can really help to make a project, you know, when you have an ancient instrument that you have to decide what to do with it. Because, you know, not all the instruments are uh, ready to be played, you know, maybe all the times or they need some repair. And if you have an institution which is a no-profit, like we are, I mean, we, we, we don't give any counseling, you know, just because we want to make money out of it. But you can do this and this, you know, and then they can go to some good restorer and know what, they, what to ask for, you know. So we, this, this uh, is what we are working to develop, an expertise center in Cremona. So when you have uh, just a minute or two in your busy day after you're coming back from the hospital and you pop into the museum, talk to Virginia, check up on things, is there a place that you like to go particularly in the building, just one spot that you feel drawn to? Well, I think the place probably I like the best is the area of the Friends of Stradivari because that's really something that I feel like a personal creature, you know, <laughs> something that I really made uh, uh, day by day, uh, working on, on, on international level. Uh, everything else was basically already in, in, in Cremona, but this network is really something that I feel like a son of myself. Thank you very much. It's been a real joy being in your town, and uh, your hospitality has been exceptional, and uh, we'll long remember being here. Okay, thank you. I hope you will be back and that many of the listeners of this uh, um, transmission of this uh, broadcast will, will come to Cremona to see first and to touch firsthand what is uh, about uh, violin making. Thank you. So that brings to a close my interview with Dr. Bodini. Well, almost. After packing up my recording gear, I happened to gaze out the window of his second floor apartment across an undulating landscape of tiled rooftops to where the Duomo and Tower of Cremona reached up into the sky. I said to Paolo that if it were not for an assortment of television antennas and satellite dishes, the vista was little changed from the days of Stradivari and Guarneri. Paolo then told me a story, which caused me to unpack my microphones once more. Well, I remember the time when uh, the troupe of the Red Violin came to Cremona to shoot the movie, and uh, they had to uh, take this panorama of the town in the night where the violin was, was painted with the blood of the, uh, of the maker's wife that died that night, you know. And um, so in order to do that, the director had to take down all the antenna from the roofs of the houses, otherwise, you know, <laughs> wouldn't have been middle-aged type of, uh, of panorama. So uh, as a mayor, I had to write to all the citizens said, uh, asking them the permission, you know, that uh, some people would go up to the roof. And, and this was done in one afternoon, you know, and the day after all the antenna were put back in places. So <laughs> it was, was, was interesting, you know, to, uh, to see that everybody was collaborating in order to make this movie the best possible. Was there a premiere of the movie here in town when it, it came out? Yes, it was a premiere, and also we have uh, a concert by Joshua Bell, who was the one, and he was playing the Cremonese 1715 uh, for the soundtrack of the movie. Wonderful. What a great time for the town. Yes, it was really well, very important. I think that uh, the movie helped, you know, the, the knowledge of town around the world. Let's listen now to Joshua Bell play the theme for the film The Red Violin.
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org.